Today I'm talking with Dr. Jim White, the creator of Stress Control, the most widely used stress management course within the NHS in England and the HSC. Good evening, Jim. Uh, how are you doing? Very good. So tell me, Jim, who are you and what do you do? I'm a clinical psychologist. I worked for the NHS in Scotland most of my career. Uh, and oh, now we're almost at... Uh, the 30, 30th anniversary of stress control. Uh, I, I worked in uh, a place called Lanarkshire, which is a kind of quite a deprived part of West Central Scotland, and kind of ju just realised that that you know I, I was just never getting beneath the tip of the iceberg. You know there were so many people out there with mental health problems. There were not enough psychologists. Still aren't. Uh, but individual therapy, although really helpful for many people, just was never going to let us see the kind of numbers that we needed to see. And is that the result of starting off the, the stress control course? Yeah, it, it evolved back in the, the 80s where, well, I, I think first of all, my feeling was that individual therapy uh failed as often as it succeeded and you know what what we know about about mental health therapy in, in the NHS is that it tends it tends not to attract a lot of people who you would really want to see uh, so for example particularly working class men so so guys who've got real stigma about mental health but who are at real risk of mental health and you know alcohol problems and suicide and whatnot, they, they would tend not to come into the NHS because they didn't really want to sit with a therapist and discuss their feelings, right? You know, they're Scottish, that's not something that comes easy to them. Um, so I, I kind of wondered about, is there a better way of doing this? And at the same time, do something that allowed us to see a much greater number of people. And kind of came up with the idea that that we could do this as a as a class rather than as a group, you know. So I think, I think certainly in Scotland, if you say to people, "Do you want to come to a group therapy?" They they have this image of everyone sitting in a circle, having to discuss, you know, really personal things, and that that tends not to sit very well with 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 Scots. So I think when when I set this up, I decided that if it was a class, there would be no discussion of personal problems at all. Uh, not simply that you didn't have to discuss personal problems, but you were not allowed to discuss personal problems. Uh, and once we, we made that really clear to people, they started to flock to the class. You know, they, they, once they were sure that they just sat back and listened and learned, that seemed to be very appealing to them. What is stress? Well, well, stress would tend to be quite a kind of messy affair. So it, it, it's rarely one thing. I would tend to see stress as being mainly a combination of anxiety and depression. And I, and I think, you know, I think in a lot of people's minds, anxiety and depression are separate problems. You know, you have either one or the other. But, but in reality it's much more likely you have both at the same time. Uh, you know, kind of statistics on this would be 
about eight out of 10 people who have anxiety also have depression. So you've got problems like anxiety, you've got depression, you'll have uh, sleep problems. So, you know, people aren't recharging their batteries. You will have uh, either panic attacks or at least panicky feelings. Uh, you'll have loss of self-confidence, loss of self-esteem tied in there as well. Um, often find people drinking too much or using too many drugs as a way of coping with it. Uh, and the other thing that, that we're just kind of beginning to understand now is that stress also involves a really low level of well-being uh, and when you put all of those things together, uh, I, I think stress is a good word for for that. What causes stress? A whole range of things. Um, you, you know, we we know that, that childhood factors can be quite important. Uh, we know that the children in the early years, so you know, maybe about the first four or five years, if they suffer you know, significantly adverse circumstances. So this would be things like, you know, you know, a parent dying or having significant illness or, you know, being involved in any kind of trauma or any kind of abuse, then that that, that is such a strong predictor of these kind of problems in, in adulthood. Um, but, you know, a, a much more kind of common level it's often provoked just by things like uh, lack of stability or, or lack of predictability in your life. Uh, so we look at life events. So, you know, if things happen that, that you haven't been able to predict or if the future seems to be uncertain, it often leads people to, to become stressed. Uh, and, you know, from the statistics, you know, I mean, right now, you know, certainly in Ireland, as in Scotland, uh, about one in five of us is suffering quite seriously from stress. You know, not not just a fit of the blues, not just feeling a bit uptight, but having stress at a level that's really impairing your ability to to enjoy your life. And would that be regarded as chronic stress then, Jim? Well, you know, it's perfectly natural for us to be stressed in the short term. So, you know, if we're going through relationship problems, then, of course, we would expect to be stressed if we've got, you know, a large amount of work to be to be done uh, in our employment. And then, of course, that would, would cause us stress. But you st you'd start to, to think of stress as a, as a problem uh, when, you know, it, it appears at times when it shouldn't really be appearing. You know, so if, if you... If you wake up on a on a lovely Sunday morning and you're just full of worries or or brooding about about you know depressive things, then that becomes a worry. Uh, and and I think when it becomes the centre of your life, so you know the the example I often think of is your brother phones you up on a Monday and says, "Do you want to come out for a pint on Friday?" And you say, "Yeah, that sounds good, but." let me wait and see how I feel on Friday. So, you know, when stress starts to to uh, make decisions about your life, then I, then I think at that point it's becoming chronic. What do you think actually keeps the stress going, Jim? Well, I, I think an important thing is the way that people respond to stress. Uh, the, most, the most common way that we respond to stress is 
avoidance. Uh, so, and, and, the, and the trouble with avoidance is it works, right? So, you know, say you are you are kind of quite socially anxious, and you are you've been invited to you know someone's house. You go towards that person's house. You're getting more and more anxious the whole time you're there. You eventually get into their street and your anxiety is so high, you decide, I can't do this. I'm, I'm, I'm turning around, I'm going home. So you, so you avoid. The very instant you decide to turn around, your anxiety just plummets. So avoidance really, really works, but it only really works in the short term. Because the time you get home, you start to to have a go at yourself. You know, oh God, what's wrong with me? I'm so useless. I'm so stupid. I'll never get over this. Uh, and and avoidance in the long term just makes you much worse. And and avoidance can become such a kind of habitual way for you to cope with stress that you almost don't even realise that you're doing it anymore. So so I think avoidance is so important. There's, you know, there's so many other things like um, there's something called the fear of fear. And that is, again, if we were thinking about anxiety here, you know, when you start to feel panicky over something, uh, you know, your heart starts to, to race, you feel breathless, you get tingling in your fingertips, you think, oh, my goodness, I'm having a heart attack. Now, you know, you're, you're probably hyperventilating, you're, you're having a panic attack. But the very fact that you believe you're having a heart attack, even for a few seconds, of course, just generates so much more anxiety that, that the problem then just feeds itself and keeps itself going. Is anxiety the same as stress or is it different? I think it's part of it. Uh, so I, I, would, I would see stress as involving uh, anxiety and depression, you know, the, the kind of two sides of the same coin. So, so what you get with anxiety is usually the what ifs, where you look into the future, uh, you you predict what's going to happen, but because you're anxious, you usually predict it uh, in a very kind of threatening way. You know, what if I go into work tomorrow and the boss pulls me up? What if she leaves me? What if we can't afford to stay here? What if this mark in my body is something really serious? So, so anxiety tends to look into the future and it tends to be full of threat. Whereas depression uh, tends to look to the past. So instead of, of worrying with the, the what ifs, you tend to brood about the if onlys. Uh, so, and, and one of the themes uh, in depression that you come across quite a lot is the sense of loss. So someone who's depressed may sit for very long periods uh, uh, brooding about the past and saying things like, you know, if only my mother hadn't died when, when she had, if only that relationship had worked out, if only I'd got that job, if only we hadn't moved here. And that kind of, of uh, brooding or, or rumination can go on for hours and hours and, and put those two together, put the anxiety and depression together. And, you know, you quickly understand just how miserable stress is for people. Is there, in your say, common signs of depression then, Jim? The common signs of depression <coughs> would be uh, things like uh, poor concentration, 
uh, th things like um, uh, loss of appetite, poor sleeping, uh, obviously, you know, low mood, just losing your sense of humour, all of those things would be would be in there as well. Uh, one of the signs that that um, uh, people often don't think is due to depression, uh, but is, is, is anger. So, you know, sometimes I found it almost quite easy to diagnose people within the first couple of minutes because they are so angry. And, you know, you, you, you say to them, are you always like this? Uh, no, I'm not. I don't know why I'm like this. But that kind of anger is often a symptom of depression. And then, of course, you know, what's happening there is if, if the person is angry, they're going home, their relationships are suffering really badly, but, you know, relationships at, at, uh, at home or at work. So they're losing uh, relationships because people are just really fed up with them. That makes them more isolated and uh, that makes them more depressed. So, uh, Again, you know that that's an example of the kind of vicious circles that you that you can get with things like stress, where one thing triggers something else, and that then feeds into the the whole problem. Is there a difference to a person experiencing unhappiness to experiencing depression? Yeah, that's that's really hard to work out. Uh, I mean, I, 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 there was a book that came out a few years ago. And it's called The Loss of Sadness. Uh, and the, the point that those authors were making in it was that we're almost kind of pathologizing normal emotions now. So instead of someone being unhappy, they're clinically depressed. And, you know, what they're arguing is, well, people have always been unhappy and always will be unhappy. And, you know, we almost have to go back to that. And if you look at, you know, if you look at something like antidepressants, uh, in in Scotland just now, one in seven adults is being prescribed an antidepressant. Now that's an utterly frightening figure, and I can't imag imagine for a minute that all of those people are depressed. I think a lot of those people are unhappy because their lives are difficult, and that that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to help them. But I don't think it's all that, all that helpful to say that they've got a mental health problem, whereas what they may be doing is actually responding very normally to adverse circumstances that, that they find themselves in. And, you know, I, I, I was just talking the other day to, to some of my colleagues about deprivation. So if you look at, if you look at the statistics on, on mental health, People in deprived areas, the poorest areas, are twice as likely to have a mental health problem than those in the more affluent areas. And I think you've got, you've got to wonder why that is. So people whose lives are difficult, who are kind of just living on the edge a lot, are being diagnosed as having, as, as, as having a mental health problem and are being you know, uh, uh, given medication for it. When in fact they may well be unhappy because there's something wrong in their life, and is it their responsibility to seek help for that? You know, I, I, I don't know. I think it's a, I think that's an interesting area. Uh, so you know, to come back to your really good question, 
is the difference between depression and unhappiness. I think it is very vague. And you said there, Jim, about these people living on the edge. What do you mean by this? Well, well, I think you know, it, it, just the the unpredictability of the lives. So, you know, they kind of dread their kids coming home from school to say that there's a school trip to Paris. You know, can I go on it? Which the answer is no, you can. Or you know, kind of dreading that one of the kids comes home with these school shoes ripped because there just isn't enough money to to buy him a new to buy him a new pair. Uh, and you know, living in kind of substandard housing or areas that get high crime rates, uh, poor public transport, all of those things, you know, surely add to your your sense of of unhappiness. So, you know, I'm not suggesting for a second that people who come from very affluent backgrounds can't get hideous mental health problems and, and be unhappy. So, of course, they can. Uh, but, you know, just the statistic that people in these areas are twice as likely to have a mental health problem, I think we have to, uh, I think we have to be cautious about the way we interpret that. Why do you think, say, Jim, that people nowadays say, are experiencing a lot more stress than, say, 20 or 30 years ago? Uh, they appear to be. Uh, all of, the, all of the, the kind of assessments on this would suggest that stress and depression and anxiety are becoming more and more common. Um, now, now, to some extent, I think people are opening up a lot more. So, you know, in the past, we used to hide it much more than, than we do now. So, you know, one possibility for this increase in, in people seeking help is, is a very positive thing that, that people are saying, well, there's no stigma about this. We should seek help. But I think that there probably is, um, there is evidence that is showing that life is just becoming just more difficult. Uh, so you would look at things like, you know, the breakup of communities. So that we are we're living in a very kind of individualized world these days. Uh, a lot of us are living very isolated lives. Uh, we don't have the same social supports that used to be there. You know, the, 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 the thing in, in, you know, my, my hometown of Glasgow, it used to be very common for, say, a daughter... Uh, to be given a council house in the same street as her mother, and the grandmother would probably be in that that street as well, so that when there were kids about, there was fantastic support there. And now you just don't have that at all. You know, people's lives have obviously become a lot more kind of complex, so you've got a lot of women who are working full-time, who are coming home, uh, Hopefully their partners, their husbands are helping, but the chances are the woman is probably still doing the brunt of the work with the kids and the house and the cooking and so on. So there's a massive amount of, of pressure there as well. Um, and, you know, th th there are some of my colleagues at the University of Glasgow. Uh, they're, they are doing some really interesting stuff uh, and saying that, well... It, it's harder to take kind of pride in your life now. So again, just to use a Glasgow example here, is uh, there's been quite a lot of work about the men who used to work in the shipyards, which was a kind of horrible, dirty job. But 
these men had phenomenal pride in what they did and pride in the skills that they had. And of course, you know, the shipbuilding's gone now, the steel industry's gone now, and people are doing jobs which have so low levels of job satisfaction. People can't take a pride in their work anymore because there isn't really much to, to take any pride in. Uh, and also, uh, arguably, you've got to look at issues like marketing that we are just bombarded, you know, day and night now with the need to have, you know, the, the, the best mobile phone, the best pair of football boots, you know, the best iPod and so on. Uh, so I, I think um, I, my view would be that, that the world is becoming a more stressful place. Uh, and actually, another thing that I, I would add to that, uh, there's, a, there's a really interesting book called The Spirit Level. And what The Spirit Level started off as doing, they, these guys are essentially statisticians. So they, they, they don't really come to this with any kind of bias. So they just ask themselves the questions, uh, can we identify the factors that make up a successful society? So they looked at um, so they looked at things which would suggest to them that that this would be an unsuccessful society. So they looked at things like you know the number of people in prison, the number of murders committed, uh, they looked at things like divorce rate, they looked at things like child abuse, they looked at levels of mental health problems, they looked at suicide rates, and so on right across the world and then you know having got all these statistics for each of those countries they tried to work out what explains this why are some countries worse than others and by far the best fit that they had was inequality so it was the countries uh, that had the largest gulf between the richest and poorest. They were always the worst societies. And although the poor always suffer more, the rich in those countries suffer more than the rich in other countries. Uh, and, and the countries that are by far the most unequal uh, is Britain and uh, perhaps, uh, strangely, Portugal, and, of course, the United States is virtually off the scale. Now, if you come down to the other end, and it's the countries that have got the least gap between uh, rich and poor, uh, right at the bottom are all the Scandinavian countries. So it's Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark. And these are countries that, that tend to have quite a strong kind of social contract that says the rich shouldn't be too rich, the poor shouldn't be to poor. Uh, and the other country that's, that's right in there amongst the Scandinavian countries is Japan, uh, interestingly. And of course, Japanese culture is radically different to uh, uh, Scandinavian culture. So it, it doesn't seem to be culture. And what they, what they are saying is inequality is an incredibly good predictor for uh, the level of mental health problems. Uh, and, and, one of, and if that's true, which, which I, I think is reasonable to assume that it is. Uh, one of the problems is that virtually every country in the world is becoming more unequal year after year. So 
So even the Scandinavian countries are now becoming more unequal. So you know, so 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 I think you know, to go straight back to your original question on what causes stress, there are these things at the individual level, right? You know, childhood problems, life events, lack of predictability. But then you've also got to look at you know just family issues. You've got to look at the wider community, and then you've actually got to look at the country level as well. So that you know, arguably, it might be that the best treatment we've got for mental health is actually to change the tax system. But of course, it's not going to happen because uh, you know who's going to vote for paying more tax? Tell me about the fight, flight, faint, freeze response. Well, this is a, this is an, an ancient instinct that's built into all of us, and it's there for very good reason. So if, uh, well, to, you know, to go back to kind of Stone Age days, if you are a Stone Age uh, man, you're walking through the, you know, the savannah and there's a, you know, a saber-toothed tiger kind of eyeing you up, uh, you want to have some ability to get away from that, from that tiger. You're not going to fight that tiger, you're going to run away from it. So as soon as your brain detects any kind of threat, changes happen to your body, right? There's stress hormones released throughout the body. So, you know, things like adrenaline, noradrenaline, and uh, particularly cortisol release in your body and things then happen to your body. So for example, uh, now, now I'll give you an example of running away from, you know, a, a, a tiger. But if you think of this, when you get anxious, does the same thing happen to you? So running away from that tiger, first of all, your heart starts to beat quicker. Now that pumps blood into your arms and legs that lets you run or, or punch. It pumps blood into your lungs to give you more stamina. So if you are running, you can keep running. It uh, changes your vision so that you become much more focused, much more vigilant on what's going on. It uh, helps you cope better with pain, so you don't feel uh, as much pain while that's going on. It changes your perception of threat so that when fight flight is affecting you, not only can you run faster and punch, faster, uh, uh, punch harder, but you start to see a lot of things as being threatening. Now, if you think of that when you get anxious, people, you know, you say to them, well, what do you feel threatened by? And they typically just say everything. And that, that's fight flight. That's your brain saying, be highly vigilant. There is threat all around you. So it's a very normal response. It's a very useful response for us to have when we face physical danger. But the trouble with fight flight is that it's centered in a very kind of primitive part of the brain that simply can't tell the difference between, you know, someone standing in front of you threatening to punch you and someone standing in front of you about to criticize you. It's the same thing to, to that part of the brain as threat. And therefore it triggers this fight flight emotion which will be very useful to let you run away from the person who's going to punch you, but 
just doesn't help you with the person who is going to criticise you. Uh, and when you get anxious, this fight flight response just goes on to hair trigger, and it's triggered, you know, for the most minor reasons, and there's very little that that you're able to do about it until you learn some some uh, skills. And is it a healthy place to be in, Jim? It, as long as you're facing physical danger, it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, there was one creature that we know of that was born without the fight-flight uh, uh, ability in its brain, and that animal was the dodo. And the reason for that was the dodo grew up on the island of Mauritius, it evolved over you know tens, hundreds of thousands of years. There were no predators on Mauritius. There was nothing that could harm a dodo. So therefore, it didn't need a fight-flight response because there were no threats. It never had to run away from anything until the 18th century when Portuguese sailors discovered the island of Mauritius. And uh, the, the, the diaries from these sailors shows what happened. You know, they came ashore, they were desperate to get fresh meat. The dodos, instead of running away, actually came down to the beach to meet them because they were interested. The boats came onto the beach, the sailors released their dogs, the dogs ran up, brought down the first dodo, killed it. All the other dodos just sat about watching because they had no sense of fear. And dodos soon became extinct. So, you know, it's really important that we have the ability to feel threat and to deal with it effectively. The problem is now that most of the threats that we experience are psychological threats. They are, you know, fear of what other people are thinking of you, a fear of whether you can cope or not. And the trouble is that is that is triggering the fight-flight response. And is there a relationship between, say, that psychological distress and mortality, Jim? Uh, sadly, there is. And uh, what you know, what we know is that problems like anxiety, depression, or, or stress, in other words, uh, not in the short term, but in the long term, are really bad for you. They they kind of they slowly work on your physical systems and there is unquestionably a relationship between problems like anxiety and depression and heart disease, uh, strokes and some cancers. So stress is not only really unpleasant, it does do you physical harm in the long run. If, if you have chronic stress, if it goes on and on, it can do you chronic harm, and, and that's why it's so important to to tackle it. I think I think one of the statistics I've noticed recently is uh, people are saying that anxiety, having anxiety on a daily basis has the same health risks as smoking ten cigarettes a day. So, you know, we know we know the dangers of cigarette smoking. Uh, so we should be a lot more aware of the dangers of uh, stress. Is there a way for a person to know that they are actually in this chronic distress state? 
what I've tended to find, and, and this is obviously a bit of a generalisation, uh, women are much better at detecting when they've got a problem. So, so if you want, I, I think women on the whole are more emotionally intelligent than men. Men just don't pick it up. So, you know, they, 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 they can go for months or years and they're really highly stressed and they just don't see the signs of it. You know, people might point out, why are you so bad-tempered all the time? Why do you never come out when I, you know, when I invite you out? And the men never quite get that it's that it's stress. I, I think there's a bit of a tendency. Um, I'm sure in Ireland, as much as in Scotland, for people to kind of medicalise their problems. So they look at the physical symptoms of stress. So you know things like. Uh, you know, rapid heart rate or sweating a lot or running to the toilet. They go to, 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 to the doctor assuming they've got a physical problem and, and they're sometimes very surprised or, or very reluctant to accept when the doctor says, actually, I think this is stress. You know, there is still a bit of stigma there that I think people would, would rather have a physical problem than uh, a, a psychological problem. Which distress affects our feelings or our thoughts, but how can this say, impact our actions then? I, I would divide actions into two. So I would I would look at avoidance and I would look at behaviour. So if you look at avoidance, uh, you know, the, there's the, the really kind of obvious ones like agoraphobia. So, you know, the fear of busy places. So you don't go on buses, you don't go into the supermarket, uh, you don't go to the pictures and so on. Uh, but avoidance might well be be very very subtle. So you know one of the kind of one of the common ones that people just just never realise is uh, something like uh, a, a fear of taking responsibility. So an example there would be, uh, you know, a friend phones up his friend and says, "Do you want to come and see a film tomorrow night?" Yeah, that would be brilliant. The friend says, "Well." what film do you want to see? And the other one says, well, oh, I don't care, you choose. Now, you know, maybe nothing happened there, but maybe actually that was that person refusing to take responsibility. You know, so that's a really subtle thing. So I don't want to choose the film in case it's rubbish. And if it's rubbish, it will be my fault that, uh, you know, we've had a useless night out. And of course, what people are doing there is they're treating themselves much harsher than they would treat anyone else. So, you know, if the friend chooses a film and it turns out to be rubbish, they'll probably just have a laugh about it. So they'll treat it in a completely different way. So there's, so there's sometimes those very subtle forms of avoidance. And then on the other hand, with actions, you've got the behaviour. So that's when your behaviour changes as a result of, of stress. And, you know, this could be, again, if, if you think about a kind of socially anxious situation, so the person starts speaking much too quickly or they start to stammer or stutter or they won't say anything at all. Or, you know what it's like sometimes if, if uh, you're in a group of people and there's just a kind of natural silence someone who is stressed might jump in there and just start to talk about anything because they take responsibility for 
for the silence. So I think in terms of actions, uh, 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 some of them are very subtle, some of them are very obvious, uh, and sometimes it's really useful to actually ask someone close to you, when I get stressed, how do you know that I'm stressed? And what the person, of course, will pick up on is their actions. So how would you think being a caregiver or having a family member with a chronic disease could affect the stress in the family? Oh, uh, well, I think if, if uh, this is a caregiver who's looking after someone you know, with dementia, would that be an example for you? That would be an example, yeah. It's phenomenally stressful to do that. And, of course, it's to do with a lack of control. You know, so, so in something as horrible as, say, Alzheimer's, I mean, first of all, you're watching a loved one just, you know, disappear in front of your eyes as, as, as that old person goes. And, uh, 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 you know, and of course, it's not just the memory that goes, it's the personality that changes and so on. But it's the person, the, the caregiver's lack of control over the, the situation. So they don't know, you know, will, will their loved one wake up during the night? Will they, you know, start to behave in a difficult way while they're outside? You know, will they keep asking that same question time and time and time again? So what we do know is that caregivers have a really, really tough time of it. Uh, and and uh, I, I think it... I don't think we offer enough support to caregivers. And I know you created the stress management course called Stress Control. How does that course actually work then, Jim? Well, it's a, it's a six-session class. So it's a class, not a group therapy. And um, people, it, it works almost like, you know, just just uh, going to any kind of performance. So going to, to the cinema, going to the theatre. Uh, you just lay out a lot of seats. People come, take any seat they want, and the person running the class, who might be a psychologist, uh, but certainly someone who's trained in cognitive behavioural therapy, really just gives a lecture. Now, there would be the six sessions. So the first session is purely information. It's called What is Stress? Uh, and that's because I, I'm such a strong believer that the more you understand problems like stress, the more you can start to, to deal with it. So, so I think the understanding is the first point. So they, they are also being asked to read the booklets that go along with the class. They're being asked to carry out certain tasks. So uh, they need to learn more about stress, but they also need to learn more about how stress affects them because no two people experience it in the same way. And once they know that, then that's kind of the foundation built. And they then go on to session two. Session two is called controlling your body, where they learn things like uh, uh, a, a, a very useful uh, breathing technique, uh, diaphragmatic breathing, it's called. They, they learn something called progressive relaxation. Because, again, this is, this is linked to anxiety in session two. When you get anxious, it affects your body in two ways. It tightens up your muscles. So, you know, the back of your neck feels sore or your chest feels sore or, you know, your, your, your shoulders are up around your ears. 
That's because your muscles are tightening and it also affects your autonomic nervous system. And that's the part of the body that kind of speeds up. So that's when your heart races, you sweat, you run to the toilet and so on. And progressive relaxation tackles both of those. It teaches you to relax your muscles and it teaches you to slow down your autonomic nervous system. Uh, and we'd also look at, you know, very, very straightforward things like uh, caffeine, because if you are taking a lot of caffeine, then you may well actually be mimicking some of the signs of anxiety. And it can also lead to panic attacks. So it's really useful just to, to try and reduce your caffeine level. Uh, and we look at exercise as well, because, you know, that's now pretty well known that exercise, although we don't really understand why, seems to be especially good for depression. So about 30 minutes exercise five times a week seems to be a, a pretty reasonable target for most people. Uh, session three takes us on to controlling your thoughts. So this is called cognitive therapy. Uh, and the person is taught kind of what, what happens so you're thinking when you get stressed, why can't you just use your common sense? And uh, we teach them ways of kind of standing back, of analysing their thinking, and then of, cha uh, of challenging their thinking. Uh, and then finally, there's a, there's a nice technique called breaking stress up, which is a really nice way to uh, uh, prevent stress because, you know, prevention is always better than cure. Session four takes us to controlling your actions, and this is behaviour therapy, where we uh, teach people to face your fears. We look at uh, problem solving, which is just, it's always been my favourite skill on the course. Uh, and then there's something called uh, uh, getting out of your, your comfort zone. Now, in the jargon, this is called uh, uh, safety behaviours, and this is this is actually quite difficult to teach because a safety behavior is something you do to try to protect yourself. Now, I'll give you an example of this. Um, someone carries about a diazepam, a Valium tablet with them in their, you know, in their pocket for years. And what they'd say to themselves is, if I didn't have this diazepam on me, I wouldn't be able to go out, to go to my work, to go on the bus, to go out and visit friends and so on. And that kind of seems like decent common sense. In fact, it's keeping the problem going because the reason you are getting out to your work and so on is not because of the diazepam, because you don't take it, it's because of of what you're doing, but you never give yourself the credit for it. So we look at these safety behaviours in some detail. And uh, you, if you look out onto the class, you can actually see the light bulb going on above people's heads when they suddenly realise they've been doing something that they have thought is a sensible thing to do, but in fact has been keeping the problem going. So we're, we're getting through the class on the session five. Uh, and uh, the new version, which I've just written, is a bit of a change from the old one. Uh, the first half is on controlling panicky feelings, where we look at, at uh, breathing retraining to stop hyperventilation. We look at the role of interpretation. 
and we start to use some of the skills that we've now learned from previous sessions. And then the session finishes with getting a good night's sleep, where we look at uh, some very, some very straightforward things you can do to get a good night's sleep. And then we also look at really a, 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 a wonderful skill to get a good night's sleep called retraining your sleep. Uh, in the jargon, it's called stimulus control. It's a brilliant technique, but it's really difficult to do. But if you do have really marked sleep problems, it is well worth going for this. Uh, and then finally, the sixth session is on well-being. Uh, and uh, the reason why I've, I've added that stress control is because what had been thought until a few years back was if you could reduce your stress, so if you could reduce your anxiety and depression, then you would start to feel better. Now, that's true for probably most people, but there is quite a significant number of people who actually don't feel better. They just feel empty. And it now looks to be the case that what we've really got to do on, on, on any kind of stress management approach is do two things simultaneously. We've got to learn ways to reduce stress, but at the same time, we've got to do things to boost our sense of well-being. So what we now do in session six is we look at you know, the importance of things like connecting with other people, the importance of continuing to learn things because it stimulates our, our brains, to continue to be active. Uh, and then we get into things like giving, you know, and, 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 and I have to say I am an utter convert on this now. You know, initially I thought this was maybe a bit superficial. And then I started to teach on stress control and I could tell that it was really hitting home to people. So we do that. We add in things like mindfulness, and, and mindfulness is just about kind of living in the present. So instead of worrying about the future or, or brooding about the past, we just live more in the present. And the most recent thing that we've added into stress control is we are asking people to feel or 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 to be more aware of a feeling of gratitude, but also compassion. Uh, and the, you know, the compassion is hopefully aimed at other people, but principally it's aimed at yourself. Because one of, one of the problems with stress is you become your own worst enemy. You talk to yourself in an incredibly critical way. You never give yourself any favors. Uh, you you really give yourself a hard time, and we just try to get people to adopt a more compassionate view of themselves. You spoke about breathing there, Jim, as a way to reduce and minimise stress. Can you just tell me a little bit about this? Breathing is really important. What we know is that, and again, this comes to anxiety. When we get anxious, we tend to uh, breathe too quickly for our needs and, and, and you know without going into all the kind of boring bits of this what happens is that we slowly build up uh, oxygen in our bloodstream 
and we lose carbon dioxide. Now, while that's not dangerous, it does lead to quite strong symptoms. And those symptoms uh, are often mistaken for the symptoms of anxiety. So breathing control, uh, particularly when you breathe from the diaphragm, when you slow down your, your, your breathing, when you, you get the balance in your bloodstream back between the oxygen and the carbon dioxide, it has a calming effect on the body. And what we assume is that if you feel your body is calm, then your mind can become calm as well. You know, so it's this relationship relationship between between uh, body and mind. So anything that we can do to relax the mind should relax the body, and anything we can do to relax the body should relax the mind. So I, I think breathing is really useful. Even at a very basic level, it works as a as a distraction technique. So you know, whatever you're whatever you're feeling stressful about. If you can then just focus on your breathing, then it's likely to distract you from from the stress. And I know you mentioned about problem solving as well. Like, how does that tie into stress, Jim? Well, problem solving is a is a skill. You know, it, it's one of those funny things. Problem solving was used all the time for depression back in the seventies and eighties, really successfully. But it simply went out of fashion. It wasn't because it didn't work. It's just that people kind of went on to do something new. Uh, and then probably about, I don't know, 15 years ago, it was almost as if people discovered it again and realized that it was a really good skill. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of people who work for companies will have been trained in problem solving because it, it's just really useful for, for any kind of problem. But we use it in stress control because it's so easy when you're stressed to feel overwhelmed. You know, you get overwhelmed by things which, you know, in the normal course of events would just not bother you. But, you know, you just can't handle it. And problem solving is a lovely way just to break things up into there's eight kind of bite sized pieces. We just break it up. The person feels that they're able to cope with each of those steps, never feels overwhelmed, and at the end of these eight steps, they realize they've solved the problem. So their sense of confidence builds up, their sense of belief in themselves builds up as well. And you can use problem solving, you know, and what you're doing in problem solving is you're identifying a very specific problem. You're looking at, you know, questions like if I if I solve this problem, what will the outcome be? And so if the outcome is, well, it's going to benefit me, then you go on, you know, you devise plans for dealing with, with this problem. You carry out the plan and then you review to see how it went. And you can do that for, you know, very straightforward problems. But I think you can do it for, you know, the really big things in life. So, you know, the kind of questions like, you know, where am I going in life? Am I living the kind of life that I want to? Uh, you know, these are these are huge kind of complex areas in our, in our life. And I've always thought problem solving is a great way to, to do that. What is progressive relaxation technique? Well, progressive relaxation, uh, it's, it's progressive 
in the sense that you progress through all the major muscles in your body. So you know, uh, you know, when you get when you get anxious, your muscles tighten up, and your body feels you know well, literally uptight. And progressive muscular relaxation teaches you to identify each of those major muscles. So, for example. Uh, we might focus on the muscles in your shoulder, right? So your muscles up, you know, your, your shoulders up to your neck, up to your ears. Um, now, now, what you have to do in progressive relaxation is not just try to relax the muscle. You've actually got to see the difference between tension and relaxation. So we actually ask you to tense that muscle, first of all, and then relax it so that you can see the contrast. And the reason we do this is because a lot of people just don't realize that their muscle is incredibly tight anyway. It's just so tight all the time that they tend to think of that as being normal. So it's very important that we give them the contrast. So, so we go through the body tensing and relaxing all of these major muscles. Uh, we combine that with some breathing uh, uh, exercises at the same time and by the time we go through this and uh, the way I do it, it takes about 18 minutes to do it what you should find is that you have relaxed all of your muscles if you've got your breathing sorted you've relaxed your autonomic nervous system as well and towards the end of, of uh, this relaxation we add in some kind of uh, uh, relaxing images to relax your mind as well. So it, it's, it's a fantastic technique. It takes time to pick up. It's not an overnight sensation. You need several weeks before you get good at this. Uh, and then the way that I do, and, and the other use of the word progressive here, is you then progress onto a quicker version. So you start off doing 18 minutes of relaxation. Once you get good at it, you go into quick relaxation, which takes about half that amount of time. And what you're doing really is you're honing your skills and then you progress to the third stage, which is you do it on your own. So you kind of stick it into your own brain and you carry that skill about with you. And Jim, how could any of our listeners, you know, listen to this through a CD or an MP3? Sure, if you... Google progressive relaxation, you'll find it. But uh, what you might want to do, if you're not put off by a Glasgow accent like mine, uh, uh, I've got a, a, a free-to-access website called stresscontrolaudio.com, and you'll find uh, some progressive relaxation in there. You'll find some uh, breathing exercises, and you'll find some mindfulness stuff that uh, I'd be very happy for people in Ireland or anywhere to use that. Would you have any final last tips in how people could reduce or minimise stress in their lives on a daily basis? Uh, I, I talk about uh, stress control in nine words. And those nine words are face your fears, be more active, boost your well-being. So if, uh, if people are listening to this, I would ask them to think about those nine words. Think about what that could mean in their life 
and then go ahead and do it. Never, never be passive in the face of stress. Never sit back and hope that it's going to disappear. Just fight it all the way. And uh, you can do that with stress control in nine words. And I know you're currently writing a book. I don't know if you want to talk about that book you're writing about. It's really, it's a kind of pure self-help version of stress control. So, you know, stress control exists just now as the six-week class, which is brilliant and is available uh, across Ireland, uh, both uh, north and south. But there are people who can't get to classes. So uh, I'm, I'm writing this book with uh, the Little Brown Publishing Company, and it, it's kind of it's for people who can't make it to the class. So it's, it's a lot of the material that's in the classes is going to be in this book. Uh, and, and the other thing that, that we're working on just now is an online version of stress control because, you know, everyone's online these days or just about everyone's online these days. It does give us some advantages in terms of making it interactive. So I'm actually working with a company in India. So it's going to be made available, first of all, in India. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, then we'll see whether we're going to do a kind of uh, Western European or English version of it. But we're, we're actually thinking that it might be good to get this going in countries where they have very limited access to specialist mental health services. Finally, Jim, if anyone wants to find out more about your work or how could they do it? I think that the, the, the best way is is to Google stress control and wherever you live. So, you know, stress control Dublin, stress control Belfast, stress control Cork. Um, and, and the chances are, uh, in Ireland anyway, you will get an uh, HSE a, a website coming up which has stress control dates on it. Thanks very much for your time yeah. today, Jim. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. Good to talk to you. Same to you. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.